Oh my goodness, it's the evening crew. Get your wine. You can have a coffee if you want. Don't stay up all night though. Wherever you are, I promise this will be good. It's like evening school, but we're not learning architecture. We're learning life. And you never know. If you're running a business, these tips could be cool. And if you're practicing architecture, this is just generally good advice stuff to know. Okay, 16 seconds. Get that pen and paper. Put down that frying pan. Don't burn yourself. Keep watching. Listen to us in the background. Okay. Hello, evening crew. It is me, and not just me. I'm joined by an awesome guest, and today we'll do a combination of learning a few things, but nothing too hardcore because we're chilling out. It's a seven o'clock, and we can grab that glass of wine. But I am, first of all, enjoying. It's not going to be just me. That wouldn't be interesting. I'm joined by an awesome guest, which I've known for a while. It's the fabulous and then really knowledgeable Marsha Rumroop. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good, Stephen. How are you doing? I love Yes, the virtual round of applause. (laughs) There are people there, though. And hey, everyone in the audience, you can join in. But in case people aren't, they've never met you before, Marsha, let's hear who you are, first of all. Who am I? It's such a good question. I wake up every morning. Who am (laughs) I? Who am I going to be today? I, gosh, it's always, it's quite psychological question to say how am I going to start by introducing myself am I going to start with the fact that I'm a parent I'm married that I do this I do that but actually I think the most relevant thing to share is that I'm an inclusion strategist Mm. what is that what is an inclusion strategist and essentially I like to go into organizations and help them create inclusive cultures and that's so important to me personally because yeah. literally talk about having skin in the game with all the different layers of my own identity and just it's such an important part of how we live our lives well with each other how we create inclusive spaces and I actually had a 30-year career as a broadcaster believe it or Ooh. not I worked as a journalist and radio and television and I worked in communities a lot and for me when I was doing that role it was about going out into those communities and asking what are their stories how do they want them told how can I facilitate their telling those stories how do I do and I created some media literacy projects and all that sort of thing and trying to get the leadership at that time to understand how to do that without imposing a news agenda on these communities was always quite difficult and so I went off to formalize my whole thinking about how do we talk to communities and that's when I discovered what diversity inclusion was I Mm. came across something called cultural intelligence and even myself as I became a leader and manager myself even then in those positions it was quite difficult to do so that's what I set up my own consultancy unheard voice started delivering some of that expertise outside of that organization and then having left the BC the job as director of inclusion at the Royal Institute of British Architects came up Mm. and that was the biggie because it wasn't so much that I needed the job, it was I wanted it. And I wanted it because I think I inherently understood that the spaces that we live in influence how we are with each other. And I felt that if I could influence the creation of inclusive spaces, I could influence the creation of an inclusive world. 
So I went into the Reba to do that job and I left and I still want to do it. For me, it's about still trying to create architecture, create a built environment that is for public benefit and definitely looking at excellence around inclusion for the profession and associated professions. And so that's what I'm trying to do as part of Unheard Voice. Brilliant. And I think it's absolutely amazing. And so I've actually, when I was an ROBA counsellor, I was involved in one of your inductions, which actually was something a bit later we'll talk about, CQ and the EDI. And what was interesting is I thought I knew quite a bit, but actually I realised that I didn't know as much as I thought. So it was one of their moments and it was really insightful. Now, Marsha, on that topic, though, because today is really interesting about unpacking EDI. That's it. So people can start to get to grips with the subject. But just before we do that, Kirsty also verifies that you are totally fabulous. And thank, thank you, Kirsty. Kirsty. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Kirsty, for being here. Now, the term EDI, it can get banded around on websites. It can be as a task for an architecture practice to do. We must be more inclusive or something like that however some practices might be running with the ball in architecture some might have genuine good intentions or some might be accidentally missing a few things out but we before we go into that first of all i'm going to break down the e and the d and the i and so what is equality in your definition of it marcia first and foremost talk about equality and equity and equality is about everybody getting the same which is fine if we're all at the same start point but we know because of our backgrounds because of discrimination because of biases all of which I can break down as well we're not all at the same start point and equity speaks to a quality of access and making up for historic imbalance Mm. so that could be around putting in particular policies procedures practices and making sure the systemic support of those who traditionally have not been given access to whatever it might be Mm. equitable outcomes is really what we're looking at because equality is not enough in some cases yeah okay that's pretty good now on that note you did touch upon equality and equity and i'm going to be very honest i always think of equality so first what on that note what is the difference between the two then yeah so when it comes down to how we break it down if you can imagine if you have three people one's super tall one is medium height and one's really small And they're trying to look over a fence and you give them all the same size box to stand on to look over the fence. Actually, the really tall person didn't need it in the first place. The middle sized person can now look over the fence, but the smaller person can't. And so was that the right way to do things to get give everyone a box when actually maybe if you've got three boxes and you give the the middle person one and you give the smaller person two that's an equitable outcome because then they can all access and be able to look over the fence so Mm. the difference between the equality is that when you gave everyone the same Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But with equitable outcomes, you're really addressing those individual needs and making up for any imbalance that there might be. 
Okay, wow, we're really getting all the answers here. Now, I have a few more <laughs> questions, and these are ones that have been submitted to me and ones that I've been thinking of, and a few that I Marsha helped me with at the start, because I was like, give me one or two that we'd love to talk about as well. So we got a combination, right? But before we do that, anyone in the audience, this is your tight chance to pick Marsha's brains. Now, if your brain's completely flattened from the day, because it's a long day, then totally Tuesday cool. mush, Tuesday mush brain. Yeah, if you got that, just just join us for it however if there is an example do feel free to share it now on that quick note if you can also find master stuff and i'm going to mention a bit later on our website which is www.unheardvoice.co.uk and we'll show that a little bit later and i'll go back to the questions now and but there it unpacks things even more that's the beauty so there's more stuff there but while you're here Marsha, i got the next one we talked about the e we talked about two e's okay but what about, oh, I've gone to the wrong one. D is the next one in EDI, isn't it? So <laughs> I guess it doesn't matter which way because they're all important. Uh, but yeah. what is then diversity in terms of culture, workplace, office, architecture? Yeah, diversity is a really interesting one because you hear it bandied around a lot. We need diversity. We need to have a diverse team. We need to hire a diverse candidate. But diversity is um, simply the mix of visible and invisible difference. So you might hear about race being an aspect of diversity and gender, age, different physical abilities, sexual orientation, religion. Mm. But it's also things like communication styles. So if you are more direct communicator or more indirect, for example, and it's access to education. So if you're privately educated or state educated, whether you've been educated up to 16, 18, tertiary education, those are different kinds of diversity. You've got neurodivergence. You've got access to technology. So, mm. for example, we talk about everything's going online now, even if you want to do some banking, all the high streets banks are closing. So what does that mean for access for those people? And at the moment, of course, the big news is around closing rail ticket stations. What does that mean for those who the one in eight people who buy a train ticket in person? Mm. Diversity is simply understanding that mix of visible and invisible difference. It's a fact of humanity. We're all part of diversity. Diverse isn't something somebody else is. So, you know, when you talk about we're hiring a diverse candidate, actually, we need to rethink our language in that case, because probably what we're really talking about is addressing underrepresentation. Yeah. When we look at our firms in our practices in architecture, you have a very predominant demographic, which is the white able-bodied heterosexual man, probably based in London. And when we look at the spend of architecture in the UK, I think the last figures I saw said about 70% was spent in and around London. And that's where it's got the highest concentration of architects in the world in mm. London. And yeah, mostly it went from a racial perspective, white. Again, the disability voice is so quiet in, in architecture, able-bodied Heterosexual, again, the variance of sexualities and sexual orientation, according to ARB statistics, is quite low. And then men, yeah. But when you compare with the actual demographic yeah. of the UK population, that's why everybody heterosexual men based in London Southeast. I love to ask this question, actually, Stephen. 
do mm. you know what the percentage is of the UK population that is actually all those five characteristics? Why able-bodied heterosexual men based in London Southeast? If you had to pick a number out of the air, percentage of the UK population, why able-bodied heterosexual men based in London Southeast? I think it'd be. I'm, I want to say that I'm hopeful that the number's lower across the board, but probably higher in architecture. But I wouldn't have no clue, dude. Give you, am I, is it like a huge number again, like 60%? Or are we talking, are you like the number you're on about? Yeah, percentage-wise, the percentage of the UK population that yeah. is white, able-bodied, heterosexual men based in London, Southeast, is only 3.1%. Okay, so that's low. Population. But when you look at who runs our politics, our economics, our media, our culture, that's our architecture, yeah. that demographic is highly overrepresented. And so mm. when we're talking about diversity, what we're really looking at is trying to address that overrepresentation and targeting in a really meaningful way, hopefully. Uh, that that system of underrepresentation. So how do we really look at that carefully? And so yeah. when we're talking about diversity, we should use better language and really say this is about addressing underrepresentation in yeah. our firm because all the leadership look the same and yeah. it's not quite representative of the UK population. Yeah, I agree. And I think that may be a more naive view of initially diversity is i think mainly to focus on race especially when it comes to website and all this stuff when actually there is so much more as you say underrepresentation that goes into it Do i'm you glad you mentioned that because representation matters when it mm. comes to having women having different racial backgrounds yeah. having people with if they're disabled having people who have different sexual orientations this all matters because there is a real element in when you can see someone who represents you in leadership positions, then you're more likely to feel like, okay, this is a profession for me. This is an organization for me. This is a practice that I can stay and grow in, for example. However, I always like to just caveat that representation matters. But just because someone comes from an underrepresented group doesn't mean they themselves will be inclusive in their behaviors yeah. and just because someone comes from an underrepresented group doesn't mean they represent all of that group either yeah, yeah. if people are just individuals so it's worth um, bearing that in mind when we're thinking about diversity and addressing underrepresentation yeah fair enough exactly it's there's a lot to unpack this is probably like a first attempt to go through it now Marsha, I do have a few more questions. However, we have a nice curveball from the audience because I, I, I don't know the answer. That's why it's a curveball, but you might. I hope or so. you could take a first stab with it. So Pale nicely says, how can we relate your really clear example of equity, brackets, heights, and number of stools to an architecture practice? So can you visualize that for us, Marsha, in terms of context? 
So when you have an architecture practice, there may be a number of reasons why you don't have equitable outcomes. It could be around your staffing, so how you're attracting people to your organisation. You may not have equitable outcomes in terms of who's progressed and retained and developed in the organisation. You may not have equitable outcomes in terms of your design, so your design isn't particularly inclusive. And then there's also equitable outcomes in terms of who you're reaching, in terms of clients and your procurement and how you're doing your community engagement. So when we're talking about equitable outcomes for just even just looking at your recruitment, so how can you build in different systems? So an an equality-based system is that your current recruitment system is just treating everybody the same. But if you have underrepresentation and you want to ensure that you are reaching certain underrepresented backgrounds, an equitable system would require you to look at the language that you're using in your job ad, look at where you're advertising it and targeting certain groups, look at the kind of system that you have for the recruitment. So it could be, are you doing interviews or is it based on portfolio? How are you looking at the, those portfolios? Who is looking at them? And so putting in different systems, which allows you then to more thoughtfully in, ensure that different underrepresented groups are invited to you know, participate in your recruitment yeah. system, for example. When it looks, when you're then looking at, okay, how you're treating progressing and retaining staff, again, who is getting those opportunities? How are they getting them? Is pay fair? Looking at gender pay gap, for example. If there is a gap, then this is normally due to who's in leadership and who's lower down in the organisation, if it's a hierarchical one. Looking at those systems and baking in procedures, policies and practices that allow those underrepresented groups to not only be recruited at different stages, but then are treated, progressed and retained is that piece. The design piece is a massive piece. How do you bake in equitable design outcomes? There's a lot of guidance out there on how to do this, but inclusion in design isn't just about accessibility. It is about gender safety. Do women feel safe in a particular space? But of course, when you open up spaces so they feel safer, you have wider pavements, you have more curved buildings so you can see people coming, better lighting. That doesn't just help women. It helps so many other groups as well. Inclusive design is about a much broader view that goes beyond legislation to create equitable outcomes. Depending on your background, you can see something that feels right for you. And then how you do your community engagement. Who are you listening to? How are you actually approaching those different people? Are you just sending around an email or posting something through people's doors? And if they don't respond to a planning application, is that is that as much as you're going to do? It's got to be a lot more thoughtful that participatory approach at co-authorship in order to get people on board and really listen to those voices, not just the loudest ones. In terms of the heights and stools, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but essentially it's about looking at those individual needs and the needs of those underrepresented groups and building them in at a more representative level into your thought and behavior process. Yeah, I've said it's I think it's such a big topic. I tell you 
my brain was exploded years ago when I learned that job ads could be written into many tenses and tend to can be over masculine or over feminine and true inclusivity you need to tread the line on tone and I was like so that was years ago and but even then it goes even further because most job ads aren't empathetic at all aren't inclusive aren't advertised in places or even digital poverty can per someone reach that advertisement so I completely get what you mean every aspect of the business every aspect of architecture has all all these facets in so thank you for the amazing question, Payal, that's super cool. And Marsha, what a cool answer. So I'll give you a quick breather. I'll bring up your website again. Now I am gonna try and bring the website on the end of the show, but I did do this once with Hamza and I accidentally kicked myself off. So I'm not gonna do that just yet. I'll save your website for the end. Now we did definitely did the E, we did the E and we did the I. Oh yeah, we haven't done oh. what is inclusion. My goodness, that's right, that's right. We haven't done the eye. That was not inclusive, but that was accidental exclusivity. So let's be inclusive and ask, what is inclusion, Martha? Ah, oh, brilliant, love it. I love to talk about inclusion. Rather than, I, I prefer to talk about inclusion rather than diversity and equity because inclusion is the act. This is what we do. And the definition of inclusion that I find most useful is it's the culture right. where people feel that their different perspectives, their styles, their needs, are they're respected, they're valued, they're taken into account. Yeah. And I like to say that inclusion isn't about other people and their identities. It's about us and our behaviours. Mm. It's the thing that we do in order to invite, it doesn't matter who you are, what your identity is, how you identify, what characteristics you have. If I behave in a way that demonstrates inclusion, then I will do so in a way that makes you feel valued, you will feel respected, you will feel that your characteristics are taken into account. It doesn't matter who you are. Mm. And that's a piece of work that I can do that I can look in the mirror and ask myself, what is it about me that needs to change so I can be more inclusive of you, whoever you are? And when I do that, then I will act to get those equitable outcomes. So it doesn't matter about the diversity. It doesn't matter really about the equitable outcomes. What matters is me doing this thing that is going to make a difference to both of those. Okay, okay, fair enough. It I can keep sense. going. <laughs> no, that's all right. No, I love it. We can always dip back in it a little bit later, but I think that these all feed into each other. Now, the one bit, I talked a little bit about recruitment earlier, and there was two things that I've learned in recruitment and also at the RABA is that a lot of people have unconscious bias and they don't even know about it. And one of the questions we talked about before is what is bias? So I'd love to hear about what is bias when we talk about EDI and maybe you could touch upon my favorite subject of unconscious bias. Yeah, love, love the question. And the really interesting thing about bias is that everybody has it. Yeah. And you won't know that you're like, demonstrating some unconscious bias because if you were conscious of it it wouldn't be unconscious if you were aware of it it wouldn't be unconscious yeah. that's the nature of unconscious bias but bias comes in a couple of different ways actually i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you another question i'm gonna throw you in the deep end again oh, goodness. and say at any given moment 
how many pieces of information do you think your brain is processing if you've got access to all five senses? I think it's like millions of billions. Yeah, it is. It's 11 million. So at any given moment... I don't feel like that right now for me, but okay. All right, cool. (laughs) At any given moment, if you have access to all five senses, your brain is processing 11 million pieces of information. And within that, how many do you think you can consciously process of that 11 million? Um, I want to say a lot less. 40. Yeah. Okay. 40. So at lot, any lot given less. moment, your brain is processing 10,999,960 bits of information of which you are completely unaware. And within that, though, there is helpful and unhelpful shortcutting going on. So if you had to think every morning when you roused yourself into consciousness, oh, I've got to swing my legs off the bed, I've got to blink, I've got to breathe, I've got to make my way to the toilet, I've got to release my sphincter, I've got to get up again, I've got to remember to wipe. You're just not, you're not going to be able to function as a human being. You just like melt. So a lot of these things happen unconsciously and unless you suddenly become conscious of it. So if I say blink, (laughs) suddenly you're really aware of how much you're blinking, right? And so that is the nature of the unconscious bias. Some of it's helpful, some of it's unhelpful. And But to be human is to be biased because we are all processing all these bits of information. And so we're all shortcutting and this is happening. So explicit conscious bias is the attitudes and beliefs that we have about a person at a conscious level. And then unconscious and implicit bias is these subtle non-conscious thought processes that happen to us all the time. Some are helpful and some are unhelpful. Now, I think when you talk about, and when a lot of people talk about unconscious bias, what they're really talking about is the unhelpful stuff that happens, where we're shortcutting information and we're making assumptions. We're making assumptions about people based on information that we have absorbed over time about difference. So about different aspects of diversity, race, gender, disability, sexuality, age, if you've got a tattoo, access to technology, all those things that I was listing earlier, that the the reasons why people can be discriminated against, which then result in underrepresentation, all of that happens because of personal bias, which then feeds into organisational bias, which then feeds into sector bias, which then feeds into societal bias, which Mm -hmm. then feeds into our personal bias. So we need to then break that cycle of our biases feeding into our wider society. And that's where cultural intelligence comes in, which is something you mentioned a little bit earlier. All right, let's do one on the fly then. So I want to ask how we can deal with our biases and we'll get to that. But what is CQ? So I'm gonna make this on the fly. And so you, oh, CI. CI? No, CQ, CQ, you're correct. I'll tell you why it's CQ as part of the answer. Okay, go, go for it. (laughs) So CQ, so CQ stands for cultural intelligence quotient. So Q stands for quotient because CQ is a family of measurable and research-backed intelligences. So cultural intelligence, the actual definition of it is the capability 
to work and relate effectively across difference. So the capability, so it's an improvable skill to work and relate. So it's about functions, but it's also about relationships um, effectively. So it's about our effectiveness, our ability to do it well across difference, across any kind of diversity, especially when we know difference activates bias, mm. then CQ gives us the ability to navigate that. And I've got a great big, massive book here because it's a really, and it's got lots of like small writing in it, <laughs> which is the 20 years of research that has gone into cultural intelligence. And the research has now been done across 168 countries around the world. And the surveys have been done of more than 250,000 people. And the research question, the main research question behind it is what's the difference between those that succeed in today's multicultural and globalized world and those that fail? What's the difference between success and failure when wanting to work and relate effectively across difference? Yeah. And the answer is you need cultural intelligence. And it's proven what all this research proves is that when you demonstrate cultural intelligence, you will think, communicate and behave inclusively. And so that's why I advocate for it. That's why when I went into Reba and all the work that I've done before and since is based foundationally in the behaviors. Because yeah. like I say, inclusion isn't about other people and their characteristics, it's about us and our behaviors. And we're talking about inclusion, we're talking about equitable outcomes. Again, I always say the existence of policies, procedures, practices, they don't guarantee their use. It's the behaviours and the discipline to do which does. So you might have a great inclusive recruitment system, but if you're not using it, <laughs> then yeah, exactly. it's just a list of, of just a policy on a website or yeah. living in some SharePoint somewhere. Yeah. So having those behaviours is the key to unlocking actual equitable outcomes, inclusiveness in our design, inclusiveness in our organisations. No said, and uh, I agree with recruitment policies. They tend to go on the fly when you're running with the ball, but you have to practice what you preach. And it is difficult, but it is a bit like exercising that. Imagine you get just constantly get in the routine of it and it gets easier. Now, I'm just a quick reminder for anyone that's doing their dinner in the background or whatever, you can ask Marsha a question. If this, if you have tuned into the replay, you can you can still ask her a question. And I'm going to bring up her website really quickly. Which Please, is that, absolutely, drop yeah. me a line. I'd be happy to answer questions. Exactly. And for the audio listeners, it's www.unheardvoice.co.uk and you can find all that stuff there. However, I've got one or two more now. Okay. We talked about what CQ is. We talked about the importance of it. Can we loop back and quickly give a little bit more insight, insight of or your initial thoughts on then how can we deal with our bias? You talked about the recruitment process earlier or the day-to-day -day in an architecture, a project's kicking off, how people are treated, all that stuff. How can we start to deal with biases? Yeah, so a lot of people think that maybe having unconscious bias awareness training might be the answer. And it could be part of the answer, but I'm afraid that a lot of the research shows that one-off interventions around unconscious bias not only don't work, but in some cases can embed 
biased behaviors. So the research has shown that when people have these one-off interventions, a lot of people then think they're no longer biased and they no longer need to make an effort or to make any kind of change. And so this is the problem with unconscious bias awareness training. And there was a bit of research that aggregated into one 492 studies on these one-off interventions and so that aggregated 90,000 participants did and the question was like basically do these one-off interventions actually work and the answer was not only that they didn't work but that any changes in behavior were weak and trivial in nature Mm. so one of the authors of that report said don't try to change your bias instead work around it and teach people to create procedural changes to mitigate the impact of bias. So the way that we create procedural changes to mitigate our bias is going back to that cultural intelligence piece. So I said there were four capabilities that you need in order to be culturally intelligent. And the first is your motivation, your drive. Do you actually want to work and relate effectively across difference with those who are different from you. Mm. And of course, a lot of people say, yes, I do. I, of course I want to. But the fact is when the stuff hits the fan, when faced with difference, your defensiveness might come into play. And those biases kick in an unhelpful way, can feel discomfort, fear of getting it wrong. And all these things stop us from actually being motivated to work and relate effectively across difference. So drive is the piece where you develop your motivations and your confidence to work and relate effectively with others. Yeah. The second capability is knowledge. What do you know? What do you need to know about lived experiences that are very different from your own? And that's not just about racial difference or gender difference, but it's also about those cultural differences. How does a small architecture firm work with a bigger one, for example? And those collaborations might be cultural difference. What do you need to know there? What about the language of architecture and how it compares with the language of graphic design? That could be different cultural differences as well. How does an organization like to lead its people versus the way those people want to be led? Again, cultural difference there. So understanding that breadth of difference is about listening to those voices that are very different from your own and really thinking thoughtfully about gathering as much information as you can. I always say this is you can never know everything about everything and everything about everyone. So that's why it's so important to surround yourself with those diversity of li- lived experiences so you can get better inputs going into you with that 11 million pieces of information and start to influence those in a different way. So the third capability is CQ strategy. And I say it's the most important because if you're motivated and you have some drive and you have some knowledge and you go straight into action without Mm. stopping to think about what you're thinking about, Mm. to plan for how you're going to use your knowledge, to check any assumptions and to be hugely self-aware. Who am I? What am I bringing to the party? What is my organization going to feel like working with this other one? Mm. then you can start to create those procedural changes to mitigate the impact of bias. And that is Mm. where in CQ strategy is so important to bringing about more effective change. Mm. 
And then the final capabilities action, ultimately people judge us on our behaviors. And people and organizations that are high in CQ action have a broad repertoire of adaptable behaviors so that they can be effective at working relating across difference. And earlier you mentioned about inclusion fitness and becoming inclusion fit. And I love to use that as a useful example because I like to liken inclusion fitness and using those four capabilities a bit like becoming physically fit. And I like to talk about okay a couch to 5k so if you've ever done any kind of running or you've never done it before and you're thinking oh I need to get fitter you might start with something like a couch to 5k so first of all you're on the couch are you motivated to get up off the couch and how do you motivate yourself what are you going to do to try to motivate yourself and sometimes that fear and the discomfort gets in the way and that's certainly not going to make you any fitter and it's not going to get you moving and you'd rather sit down than watch Netflix. Well, actually, motivating yourself, number one. Number two, what do you need to know maybe about what you're going to wear, what kind of shoes, what kind of outfit, what kind of route you need to take? Then third, you need to plan. Are you going to do stretches first? Are you going to do a two, 2K fast walk and then thinking about doing something longer? And then... Up to that point, nothing has actually made you fitter, has it? You have to go out and do the run. And that's the fourth capability, going out, doing the action. And whilst you're doing it, reflecting, oh, this would be better if I had a soundtrack or maybe when it's not raining or maybe everything's gone really well and you've planned perfectly and it's all gone to plan or it's all gone horribly wrong and you have to start again. But if that first few times you do it and it hasn't quite gone gone quite right, you have a choice, don't you? You can get back on the couch, but you can keep going and keep trying and keep pursuing that plan to get fitter, knowing that it's a journey. The first time you try something, it's not necessarily going to work. But if you push forward, you start to see the change slowly occur. Eventually, you get to doing your 5k in 25 minutes. There you go. That's the idea, right? It's it's really useful for you to hear that. And I think it helps to break it down and start little by little. Because like you said, we must be more inclusive. Or, Where is the EDI that's overwhelming? But if you start making positive, uh, informed, like you say, things, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I am more sympathetic because as a business owner, both of us here as well, there's a lot going on. And I really understand practicing architecture, back of house, hiring, all this stuff, it can get pretty overwhelming. And sometimes these things can slip. Equally, though, can you really remind people or maybe make a case for how important it is that EDI exists in architecture practice and the benefits of not letting it slip? Where, why should we keep talking about it, keep it in the forefront of our minds in businesses? Or if you're working in it, why should we be promoting a more inclusive environment for people to work in? I just don't think that we can afford not to. When we have, the, the reason why I stick with being in this profession, when I have the choice to go to the NHS or local government or finance or tech or whatever, I stay in architecture in the built environment because it's so important. What architects do shapes the spaces in which people live, yeah. people exist, people, we don't have a choice. We are beholden upon this profession to shape the spaces in which we live. Yeah. And it has such power to create inclusion in the way that it does it. 
And in order for us to really think about how we can create inclusive societies is held so much by architecture and built environment professions. And so we need the kinds of people who are entering the profession to be from a broad range of backgrounds. We need the leadership of our practices to come from a broad range of backgrounds. We need our design to be thoughtful about a broad range of backgrounds. And we need to listen to the voices of the communities in which we're placing and the clients that we're serving and from those broad range of backgrounds. And given that broad range of backgrounds can activate our bias, we need to have a framework of behaviors like cultural intelligence to help us be conscious about how we're going to do our inclusion. And when we do, when we have inclusive cultures, it is proven we're six times more innovative in our outcomes. We're eight times more profitable. We have better retention of staff. We have more engaged workforce. The, there are, there's at least three decades worth of research which shows that to be inclusive is just better for everyone. And if you want to see some of that, it takes work, it takes effortful work, but it's straightforward because it starts here. Mm. It starts with each individual looking at themselves and asking the question, what is it about me that needs to change so I could be more inclusive of you, whoever you are? Now, of course, some organizations and some leadership need to do this more than others and the culture of any organization is shaped by the worst behaviors leaders are willing to tolerate of course the culture of any organization can be shaped by the best behaviors leaders are willing to demonstrate cq is a great framework to demonstrate those best behaviors and start to really infiltrate them through practices so we can get those outcomes of amazing spaces so that makes a lot of sense now this will probably be last chance alone for anyone that wants to ask questions. And while we let anyone come in with a question, because we've got a few more minutes, I was going to throw the baton your way. The interviewee becomes the interviewer. Do you have one or two questions for me, Marsha, before we talk about your website and all that stuff? I'd really like to ask you, Stephen, how are you behaving inclusively in what you do? In what way? My business or as a recruitment or dealing with clients? In whatever way you feel comfortable answering that question. Oh my goodness. I think I'm, I'm always learning. It's, um, it's just too, too, this, I've got two mind frames. So I'm a start of a new business. So I'm trying to be inclusive from the ground up. And, but even then I'll have some, I have, a, I have an immediate bias, which I've chosen because I'm trying to attract experienced recruitment consultants to work with me. So I need to open that up a little bit, you know, down the line. So I've got my own things that I'm working on as well. I'm not perfect on that. I like to think as who we are as people is pretty, we're pretty broad. There's a mix going on, but there's a lot of things they can do because I have a lot of unconscious biases. The other thing I was going to say though, in terms of 
because the large bit of the revenue. So at the podcast that I love, there's lots of cool things in the architecture social community and all that stuff. A lot of the revenue comes though from recruitment. And by nature of recruitment, I am given a client from an architecture practice and the client sets the brief. So exactly like going in for a hairdresser or whatever, saying, I want my hair, this and that. I will often get given, I'm looking for an architect, must have Revit, must have this, must have that. And actually a lot of the art of recruitment is trying to get the client to move away from the requirements or you could say biases and to things that they haven't seen before so ones that pop up for example a lot which aren't seen as rude or wrong or whatever but they can steer the search accidentally is for example Oh, if you can find someone from Oxford Brooks University, put them to the top of the pile. Mm. That is ruling out everyone that's gone to Manchester. That's ruling out the apprentice schemes. And that's not necessarily inclusive. The other thing of have to know the software. I understand that the business sense, okay, we don't want to crash the model. But maybe as a business, we need to start looking at upskilling people on it. And or maybe then stuff cut down the line comes of, oh, because someone doesn't have the software, we'll offer them a salary lower. That's probably not the same or fair or all this stuff. So those are extreme examples, but they do happen. The other bit, which I find extremely complicated and where do I begin morally is sometimes I've had one or two clients in the past. I will keep it anonymous because it's all, we're being cool here. These things do pop up. I've had some, oh, I'm trying to correct the balance in the practice. This next hire must be female. And on one hand, it's okay, we're trying to correct the problem, but you're also excluding a lot of maybe capable men for the role. And where do you begin with that? And I don't even know even to handle it myself. So there's a lot of biases to and fro. And I think that because of the scenario like that, so in that extreme scenario of, I definitely need the next hire to be female. I think people then get scared to even unpack that conversation because they don't want to seem exclusive to the female, but at the same time, there's a lot there. So maybe I can throw back to you what would your yeah. input be with that extreme well, with scenario that, with the women the equality act of 2010 allows for something called po positive action and what it means is in your job ads etc you can say things like we welcome people from range of backgrounds and we'll be particularly uh, cool. keen to hear from yeah. women and those from underrepresented groups for example those with yeah. who are disabled and racialized backgrounds and then when you make a statement like that then you have to welcome those groups and then yeah. when that happens you invite everyone and you look at objectively around the qualifications and invariably there are people whose qualifications are as good if not better than yeah. the prevailing demographic and the Equality Act allows for when you have two people of similar qualifications to to give the job to the underrepresented group yeah. so it's not about hiring someone who isn't qualified you're hiring someone who's qualified but also you're prioritizing the underrepresented group so the Equality Act 2010 does allow for that. And it's called Good. positive action. It's not positive discrimination, which is what you're describing, which is where you don't include men in the process. Yeah. You just are amplifying that you're really keen to hear from those who are currently underrepresented in the organization. I love that. That's bang on amazing top tip for here. Of, and can you remind me? It's action. 
positive action. Great. Welcoming underrepresented backgrounds. Everyone can apply. However, we welcome in particular applications from all, including underrepresented backgrounds. I love that. I tell you what, Stephen, we'll do a whole other chat just about that talking about making sure you've got inclusive websites making sure that you know the way you're selling the job is inclusive and then also really importantly for me is that the culture that people come into has got to be inclusive too amazing so we will do that we will schedule that so cool so that i'm excited for now okay so i think everyone's probably eating their dinner and stuff but there's going to be a few people that are listening in and gone i wish i asked about i don't know more of, the, uh, more of what we're talking about, more about the E, the D, the I. Now, Marsha, where can people find you? And I'm going to try to bring your website up as well. If I crash, I'll come straight back. But if I don't, we'll have the website up. But go on, Marsha. So obviously you can find me at unheardvoice.co.uk. I'm very active on LinkedIn and I try to use that platform as a way to actually share insight and guidance. So please follow me at Marsha Ramry on LinkedIn. I don't tend to use any other social platform right now. I concentrate on that one as a professional platform. And yeah, email marsha.ramreep at unheardvoice.co.uk. Amazing. The good news is I brought up the website. You should check out Marsha's website. And I agree, I do follow Marsha on LinkedIn. And it's really useful and quite nice to see all different perspectives, including hers. And also, it reminds me as a business owner that, that I can't forget all this stuff, even while dealing with the payroll and all these things. EDI is important. And now, I'm going to end the live stream in a bit. Marsha will be back. We're going to get the time. We're going to sort it all out. But Marsha will be back. And if you have any questions in the meantime, drop them to her or drop them to me. But on that note, I think that is a roundup of the live stream. So I just want to say a quick thank you to everyone that tuned in. I know we had one or two comments earlier. And Pale says, thank you, Marsha. Really interesting and engaging chat. And Kirsty, again, give us a lovely endorsement at the start. So Marsha, you've been an amazing guest. And I really appreciate it. And to you in the audience who are listening to us, I don't know, virtually in the future or being here, thank you so much. I'm going to end the live stream now. Marshall, stay on the stage. Stay there before you go and make your dinner. But thank you, everyone. I'll see you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye.